0: Thank you, Albert in New York. Thank you very much. I carry this card in my wallet and have for 25 years. Humanism, a system of beliefs that concentrates on common human needs and seeks ways of solving human problems based on reason rather than faith in God. And that's who I am. So, you know, it's April Fools. It's Friday, April Fools. This uh, tradition of hoaxes and merriment and folly goes back to probably um, the tales of Canterbury, Canterbury Tales by Chaucer in 1400. So there's only one city in the entire world that celebrates it as as a holiday. And that system is, and that city is Odessa, Ukraine. So I'd like to take a minute to celebrate the fact that our brothers and sisters are being bombed and killed and destroyed in Odessa, Ukraine on their holiday. And here's a poster from the the Quakers, okay? War is not the answer, never. Never, I'm a Quaker for as long as I am in AA, pacifists, do-gooders, you know, people that believe in justice and love and what have you. So I went to my first AA meeting in 1964, shortly after I was 21 years old. And that was the first day that I decided in my mind and heart that I probably was an alcoholic. And I certainly had the proof uh, and the rap sheet to show it. And I went to my first meeting that day in October 64, 21. And I haven't had a drink since my first meeting. So I think the number of people that can say that, that that's their experience. They went to an AA meeting or any other meeting to do something about their addiction and they haven't had a drink since. So I subscribe that fact to about 96% luck, okay, 96% luck, meaning 4% is on me, okay, and I'm an economist and mathematician, you know, I do numbers, investor, blah, 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 so let me tell you, it's not 5%, that's too much, but it's not 3%, so I think the, the actual effect on what goes on in my life is 4%, okay? And that's how I see it. All the rest is up to the other gods, police, judges, surgeons, lady luck, weather, my wife, my landlord, you know, circumstances outside of my control. So I see my objective as taking care of that 4% as best I can, you know, whether it's my health, my sobriety, my sanity, you know, whatever it is that's in my purview. So I went into AA when I was 21. AA was 29 years old. And Bill Wilson was 48 years older than I was. He was born in 1895. I was born in 1943. The first meeting I went to is two blocks from here. I live on 92nd Street. The meeting is on 90th Street, right opposite the Carnegie Hill Mansion. And there were probably 150 people in that meeting very posh Upper East Side, you know, millionaires all over the place. And I'm 21 years old. And on the literature table is a pamphlet for those under 40. Because at that point in time, if you are under 40, wow, a young person, <laughs> because all these people in the room, probably 125 people, every one of them was old enough to be my parents or my grandparents. And when I sat across from Bill Wilson at a table, there were only eight of us in September of '68. He asked me to tell me, tell him a story, my story. And when I said I'd walked into the Lenox Hill Group, he said, "You must have looked like an altar boy at the College of Cardinals." And indeed, to some of the older little flits around, I did look like an altar boy, and they, uh, you know. Imagine old guys hitting on me and I'm 22, 23 years old, wondering what the hell am I doing here with these? And I used to call them the Grateful Dead. Very, very, very grateful and very, very, very dead. You know, they were just not my, but I lived two blocks away. So the next night I went down to the Manhattan meeting, Meeting Bill Wilson started when he came back from Akron. Real people, plumbers, you know, salesmen, working stiffs, kind of people that I came from and grew up with, you know, I grew up in a a tough working class, uh, horrible, tough place in Brooklyn, okay, called Benson Hoist, Benson Hoist, half Italian, half Jewish, okay, so attached houses, wooden houses that my Scottish grandfather had bought in 1943. So each block was 90% Gumbas, wise guys, mafia, and then the next box were Jews. So it was mezuzah, Madonna, mezuzah, Madonna, mezuzah, Madonna. Got it? So I grew up, uh, I grew up on an Italian block. And if you want to learn how to handle yourself and how to handle uh, people, the Jews and the Italians are great teachers, fabulous teachers. We were neither, okay? So then we moved uptown to Bay Ridge, just the next place. And that's where the Swedes and the Germans were and a few Irish. So I mentioned that all because to me and to my friend Joan Didion, it's very, very important to understand what she refers to as the landscape of how, of where we grow up, where our parents grew up. What was the history? What was going on in the house? Who was our neighbors? What was the language? You know, Joan Didion was a fifth generation Californian. So her first book really was slouching towards Bethlehem and she talked about understanding the new that we that we grew up in so so I got into AA and I went into total immersion absolutely <laughs> they said join a group I joined two groups get a sponsor I got two sponsors I went to two meetings a day at least I went to five meetings sometimes on Sundays which you can do here in Manhattan and I got a very 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 good grounding in AA. I was, you know, treasurer of the central group, chairman, blah, 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 blah. So that's the basis of my whole introduction into AA. Um, and my my 57 years really can be broken down into the first 15 were recovery, recovering from the damage, putting my life together, getting my education and all that kind of stuff sorted out. So it took 15 years, 21 to about 35. And then it took another 15 years to um, make a life for myself, you know, marriage, children, job, blah, blah, blah. And that. so that's 30 years. And the last, uh, you know, 25 and change has been basically uh, contentment. You know, that's my stated uh, where I spend most of my time in, in the world of contentment. So. Very comfortable with myself. Very happy. Uh, very satisfied. So, on this uh, meeting that I was going to do on March 10th, I decided to go through all this materials that I have and figure out, you know, what, is, what this experience of 57 years has meant, and also what went on before I came to AA. And so, I want to start out with uh, some quotes from people who mean a lot to me and and it sets the tone for how I see my journey in AA over these years. And uh, the first one especially. And the first, first one is by a man who was born in Dublin in 1854, and he died in Paris in 1900 and is buried in Paris at Père Lachaise, Oscar Wilde. So here it is, and this is the theme song, right? To love, quote, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance, lifelong romance. And another quote I've used of his for years, be who you are. Everyone else is taken. So just be who you are, not just, but you know, be, be who you are. So that's what I've spent all these years trying to figure out, well, who am I? What am I about? And just as importantly to me, what were they about? You know, what were my parents about? What was it like to grow up in their landscape and their view? What was it like for my father at seven years old to wake up on Christmas morning, seven years old, an only child, to find out that his mother had died the night before at 28 years old? I didn't know that. I didn't know she died on Christmas morning for many, many years. And it helped to explain why my father never got into Christmas. Didn't want to get a tree, wasn't into it, got drunk. One time fell over and the whole freaking tree went over. And I just didn't know that, you know. So that's a painful thing that, you know, he had to live with. My mother's mother died when she was 13, you know. So I think parenting is a tough gig. If you're not naturally inclined, and I am. So my parents really didn't have any parenting experience. <laughs> you know, both their fathers were, you know, German and Scottish, Heidelberg and Edinburgh, and stunned by the fact that they had been left, the wife, you know, their children, how they're gonna cope with all this. And I just mentioned this because for me, it's important to understand what was going on. What was going on in their lives? What was going on in my grandfather's life? who was even more tragic than mine and my father's. He was 10 years old, my grandfather, in Helena, Montana, fighting with his older brother, Carl, over a gun that they used to use for cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians. And unbeknownst to them, the miner outside of Helena had, had cleaned the gun and loaded it. So my grandfather and his brother are fighting over the gun and bing, my grandfather kills his brother Carl at 10 years old and has to live with that his whole life. He was married to my grandmother for 63 years and he never, never once spoke to my grandmother about that, never, and he talked to me about it on the day he was gonna die because I helped him die. So here's another quote from my other lost Star, and that's Ralph Waldo Emerson, the first philosopher in in, uh, the USA, the Sage of Concord, born in 1803. And he's my main man, Ralph Waldo Emerson, for the last 50 plus years. And this is what Emerson says, "'What lies behind me and what lies before me matters little to what is within me, to what is within me. So Waldo Emerson, the uh, writer of the essay, Self-Reliance, published in 1841. You know, I read that and I knew that Waldo was talking to me, about me, and for me. So there we are. That's, that's the opening gambit, if you will. So I'm going to go through seven different slices because what I've decided is this, this, and I really didn't want to do this talk. You know, the first time I spoke at the humanist meeting, that was the first time in a year and a half that I spoke. And when Clifford wrote to me that, you know, it was an Irish meeting, I love the Irish. I've been to Ireland three times. Uh, I've been to the Aran Islands up in Inishbofin in the North. I brought the Sunday New York Times 50 years ago. i left left my apartment right here. Got the New York Times at the Grand Central, went out to Kennedy, over to Shannon, drive to Galway, the ferry up to Inishbofin, and Inishbofin had the Sunday Times on Sunday, the day it was printed, so pretty extraordinary. And I love Dublin, and you know what's not like about the Irish, in fact, when I came in, half the rooms were Irish, you know, they were just, you know, called the Irish virus, and Great old guys, great stories, characters—you know, great place to go, Dotty. We used to say Ireland, perfect. Why? Because most other people would kind of Dotty, so you know, you fit, you fit right in there. So what I've done is I've taken seven little slices, tranches, if you will, little mo- pieces of the mosaic, starting with my very first meeting and going through the arc of today and and what's gone on. So I'm just going to share these with you, pull them out. So here's my rap sheet on day one. On the day I walked into AA, I had been in a mental hospital for six months as an inpatient at 20 years old. When I was a junior, first term junior at Cornell University, I was called to the proctor's office for the third time and sent to the mental health clinic for psychiatric evaluation Came back the next day and I was given a medical leave of absence and was told that my drinking and my behavior were having a deleterious effect on the other 15,000 students. I was neither an athlete nor an academic. You know, I was just a party boy, you know, kind of just lucky enough to get into Cornell. I Scholarship, I didn't have to pay uh, tuition. So, and it's a, you know, it's. One of the best universities in america so i was given a leave of absence medical leave of absence and on it it says deal with your alcoholism and depression and so i packed up my car that day and i drove back to my family's home in eastern long island and uh, the day after christmas in 1963 they drove me back into in manhattan and at cornell medical center over on 68th street and the river I was an inpatient at the Payne Whitney, P-A-Y-N-E, Payne Whitney Psychiatric Hospital. Probably the most expensive psychiatric place in America at the time. Uh, Marilyn Monroe had been there three years before. Judy Garland was going to be there three years later. Very posh, antiques, you know, dress up for dinner. I mean, it was really... And I'm there because I'm a student at Cornell, but more importantly... I have an insurance policy to pay for this thing, so I'm there for six months. I'm 20 years old when I get out, and uh, that's just what I needed was six months to recover from the uh, disaster that I had put up with for 20 years. Because you know I had to deal with my own alcoholism starting at 14, but before that I had to deal with my father's alcoholism, his father's alcoholism, my mother's brother's alcoholism. So alcoholism and depression are the legacy in my family. Alcoholism and depression. And I've had to deal with addiction and depression my whole life. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't doesn't go away. (laughs) You have to deal with that. So my first night that I slept in New York was on 68th Street and I was 15 months old and it was the New York Foundling Hospital. A foundling is an infant that has been abandoned by his parents and is discovered and cared for by others. So this is everlasting. This is deep trauma. I've been with my mother, her father, my grandfather, my younger uncle in this house in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn for 15 months. And on October 23, 1944, I was taken to the to the family hospital with my brother, who was three months old. My mother had had rheumatic fever as a child. She was very sick after the birth of my brother. She'd lost her eyesight temporarily. My grandmothers were both dead. My father was in the Navy. My other grandfather was in the army out and he was a German speaker, so he was out in San, uh, South Dakota. So I didn't know about this founding hospital for about 40 years. That's right. But I did have a, a, a baptismal certificate from a church on 66th and Lexington Avenue, St. Vincent Ferrara. And I'm kind of curious, why would they schlep me all the way over from Benson Hoist, <laughs> all the way over to 66th and Lex to get baptized? So, so... And I didn't find out about this for for years. And my grandmother told me, and who knows if it's true or not, that that was my father's ploy to try to get a compassionate discharge from the Navy. You know, put his two little kids, a year and a just born, in the family hospital in the hopes that this would support his desire to get away from the Navy. My father, you know, my father was a hippie and boozer and horse you know womanizer. so he didn't he didn't belong in the navy so you know who knows whether all that crap is true but all i know is i had to live with that abandonment for many years you know many many years you know abandon me once shame on you abandon me again shame on me and so what that translates to me is that i never ever put my emotional Eggs in anybody's basket except my own. Because I could rely on me. I was a survivor. I knew what it took. And I wasn't about to, you know, give over to anybody else, you know, what was going on in my life. And so alcoholism and depression, founding hospital, alcoholic drinking since I was 14 years old, blackout on weekend one. Another year, I got phony proof, I got a a selective service card, draft card, because it didn't expire, show that I was, you know, 18 years old, which is how how old you had to be. So I drank from uh, 14 to 21. And the way I was drinking and my MO, and what I was going through, in my view, uh, meant that I wasn't going to live to be 25, 26, 27, you know, car accidents, my own vomit burning up in a bed, you know, just horrible. So, so I went into AA and I got lots and lots and lots of AA and I spent five years in AA doing everything I was told to do and everything I was told not to do. (laughs) I have my own program. Thank you. So after five years, I, I sort of, separated out from the mothership AA and that was mainly because and I'll explain that to you next is that uh, you know I was like a, a new Bill Wilson you <laughs> know there were no young people so what are you going to do with AA in the literature if there's no young people coming in so you know, I just got tired of being the young shot hot shot you know and blah 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 so I didn't make a conscious doing this, but I, I reflect back and I think I had a certain confidence and, and certainty that whatever I was doing was keeping me sober and well and progressing along to a point of wellness. You know, So like, likely not to go drink again if I was going to continue to drink. So they say, take it cafeteria style. Here's what I had on my cafeteria plate. Play. Written in indelible ink on my cafeteria plate, coming out of the AA cafeteria, is the following. And this and this is my whole program in one sentence. Ah, I don't drink, no matter what, no matter what. And for me, all the rest, and I mean all the rest, is conversation steps, big books, service, promises, it works if it works, moments of this, blah, 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 blah. Because I've met experts on all of those, you know, and some of them have gotten drunk. Now, the only people I know that haven't gotten drunk are the people that haven't had a drink. So, and it says our primary purpose is to say sober. So that's my primary service. So on the cat, on the tray, on this, AA cafeteria tray, I took away meetings, sponsor, fourth step, serenity prayer and fellowship. Meetings, sponsor. So in 1968, I graduated from Cornell. Just to give you an example, I went back to Cornell, did my junior and senior year, graduated with honors. Instead of the campus screw up, and I was the campus resource that someone either a student or a faculty member or somebody wanted to go to an AA meeting, I would be the contact for them, especially if they were students. Now I told you I was going to five meetings a day in Manhattan in Ithaca, New York, about 250 miles north of here. There were three meetings a week, (laughs) three meetings a week. And I'm back in college at 23 years old, trying to, I had to be, get off of academic probation. So I graduated in 68. And I get this, I drove from New York to San Francisco to make amends to the woman who i had been in love with, pinned to a fraternity friend, several years before. She was a nursing student in a nearby town, Elmira, when I was at Cornell and she had graduated and moved out to San Francisco. So I don't know this, I know there's an amends step but i didn't I didn't know about it when I drove to San Francisco to talk with her eye to eye as to why, you know, you know why I did the things I was. Her father was an alcoholic, so she understood a lot of that. So I arrived in San Francisco and I went down to an AA clubhouse by the Embarcadero. And there was a man who I met, Frank Brennan, who had gotten sober in nineteen forty six. 1946. I was 25 years old. He was 50 years old. he had started this clubhouse called the Seven Seas, an Embarcadero, Francis J. Brennan. And he became my sponsor. And I intended to stay in San Francisco two weeks. And instead, I stayed two months because he had rented a nine-room apartment in the Fillmore District. The black section of San Francisco to, to serve as, a, as a, an oasis, if you will, a crash pad for young people in AA. So I went over there, I met him there. He asked me to stay for as long as I could at this underground AA crash pad in 1968 across the street from Panther Party headquarters, okay, a Buffalo liquor store. And I said, "Well, why do you want me to stay?" Frank, he said, "Because you're going to be the ballast in this ship. You're sober 4 years. These guys are sober 4 weeks, 4 months, you know, 14 months. So just all I want you to do is just hang out, be a resource, you know, take care of these people." And I did. I stayed there for 2 months. And Francis J. Brennan was my sponsor for the next 35 years until he died on, this, on September 27, 2003. The Archdiocese of San Francisco at its annual meeting devotes the humanitarian prize to the, to the Frank Brennan. It's called the Brennan Prize. This is a man who lived the, the, the St. Francis of Assisi prayer. First two lines, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, I may bring love. So I learned how to live and be a a responsible, loving, caring man for my St. Francis of Frank Brennan. So that was one part of my tripartite. And the fourth step, that's the only step I've taken. The others don't speak to me. They just, you know, I've never gotten into the AA dogma. It just doesn't grab me. It's, you know, it just, like, what can I tell you? It just doesn't uh, do, do anything for me, um, except the fourth step, which I took hundreds of, hundreds, Matchbooks, of books, of menus. The best one is the vomit bag on the airplane you should always take the vomit bag with you, okay? Reach in, pull the vomit bag out, take your inventory, write your gratitude list, whatever. And then take the vomit bag with you because and then you can put it in your glove compartment, you can put it in your kitchen, you can put it in your suitcase and you always have that free vomit bag with you. Put in a dirty diaper, vomit, you know, whatever. So a lot of my four steps run vomit bags. But I think the fourth step is the one that I focused on because it told me over and over and over and over again what I was doing that evidenced a character defect, a shortcoming. All the things were just you know changes in dates and what have you, circumstances. But the basic you know, cause of, of, of disruption in, in my life was because I had to work on one of my character defects. And I did. You bet I did. I kept on working on them until I was content. That's who I was. So, and I I got away from AA because I didn't want to be uh, you know a, a banquet spe- speaker <laughs> you know like these clowns from LA and you know I won't I won't mention that still those, Jack's name whatever his name is, but I wasn't you know I was I didn't get sober 21 years old become to become an AA banquet speaker. So my other program was the. Quakers. I'm a Religious Society of Friends. I went to a Quaker meeting in 1966 on 15th Street, 15th Street meeting, and I've been a member of the Religious Society of Friends and Quakers since then. The Quakers are my beloved community. They are my family. They are people who reflect my values and my lifestyle. and My three sons have been, you know, went to Quaker camps, Quaker schools, and I've slept in homeless shelters and blah, blah, blah. So that's my beloved community. There's no no clergy. There's no creed. There's nothing on the walls. Zero. (laughs) We sit on benches facing each other in silence. In silence. Because all we have to know is that the inner light is within us. Sit quietly. Get in touch with that. Get your thoughts together. And that inner light is in every single Person alive without exception. So I've sat in Quaker meetings in silence <laughs> for more than 50 years. So if you feel moved, if the spirit moves you, if you feel there's something compelling to share, then you stand. You wait a couple of minutes, not a couple of minutes, a few seconds. You don't just, you gather your thoughts and then you share. With the, with the fellow attendees. And in the first 40 years I went to meeting, I probably shared four times, once every 10 years. So I was there to listen, not to partake. And then I was told several years ago that I was a, a, an elder, a Quaker elder. There's no formal business to this. It's, you know, if you've been around for 50 years, everybody's gonna be an elder. But I was told that I had the responsibility To stand, to share, to give some context to you know, wisdom, or just as the elders had done when I would been there in the 60s and the 70s, and I knew where they sat. I remember the voice, and they were extraordinary people. So Quaker Elder. As we say in New York, with that and a subway token, you can you can ride the bus. So and there are no uh, uh, we have queries. We have questions that we ask ourselves. And my favorite query is this. And these are queries that one is supposed to ask themselves. And here's the query that most appreciate. Does, Does my life bear witness to my beliefs? Does my life bear witness to my beliefs? Am I living what I believe to be true? So... So, and my third uh, part of the program after five years was Emerson, self-reliance, you know, transcendentalists. And Emerson said transcendentalism is just another word for idealism, idealism. So the transcendentalists, you know, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Margaret Fell, you know, Emerson grew up there in, in, in Concord with all of them. So... Emerson also said that above all else, we should strive to be authentic, absolutely authentic. And another one I like of his is be an opener of doors, be an opener of doors. And so today that's what I probably hope to do. So, so men, men, mention some things that might be a, interest you in, in opening doors. So. So that's what I took away from AA. And very briefly, I gave to AA over and over and over and over again, right? So when I, when I spoke at my second AA meeting up here on at the Central Group, woman comes up to me afterwards, hands me her card, and she says, she's the editor of The Grapevine, the magazine that was published, and it's still published. Gave me her card, and she listened to my story after two years, and she said, It was very, very important that I write my story for the uh, grapevine because there were no young people. Young people had to know that somebody could come at 21 and be sober and go back to school and blah, blah, blah. So she asked me to write my story, and I did. And here it is in May of 1967. My name is Al, Ithaca, New York. Okay, So I was asked to do that, and I did it. 1968, I came back from that two months in uh, San Francisco, meeting at the Manhattan Group the day after Labor Day. Guy comes over to me and he says, I want to talk to you. He said, I just came from a meeting of the Bill Big, Big Bill W dinner held every October here at the New York Hilton, and that I was going to be the male speaker at Bill Wilson's 34th anniversary in 1968. Here it is, Miracle on 34th. An inspirational dinner dance celebrating Bill W's 34th anniversary. In his once a year public appearance, speaker's LH Manhattan Group cost $12.50. So I was chosen to be the male speaker at Bill Wilson's anniversary. This big dinner had been raising money for the intergroup for probably twenty years. I was the only person that had three and a half years sobriety. I was the only person who was in their twenties or thirties. The other speaker was a woman who was sixty years old, an attorney. She was on the board of trustees of AA, and she and her husband were good friends of Bill and Lois's because they were they lived together close by up in Westchester, so. So I was the youngest person to speak. I didn't ask to do that. I didn't volunteer to do that. I didn't know the Manhattan group would put my name in for that. I was asked to do it and I did it. So, and was that in my best interest to be sober three and a half years speaking to 3000 people to be recorded? (laughs) I don't think so. so. So then in 1969, early 69, Bill asked me through Doris, the the head of Intergroup, to appear before the, what was it called, the AA World Services Conference or something, It meets every five years. It was meeting at the Roosevelt Hotel. He had managed to get me a half hour to present young people in AA, you know, what we were about, what we didn't like about AA, what we wanted to suggest, uh, you know, tired of old time is telling us to stop wasting your time in meetings, go out and get drunk. You know, what did they know? And, and I have the outline right here, <laughs> you know, eight pages that I read. I had two other people speak. We had a whole presentation. I gave copies to everybody. And what came out of that was the pamphlet, young people in AA. Because my first suggestion was that there was no age appropriate literature. So, mine is the first story in there. There it is in, in French from the uh, meeting in Quebec, the intergroup in Quebec. And there it is in Spanish. Okay. And 1969, my story is still in the pamphlet Young People in AA, 50 years later. So, you see, I mean, it was just a, a weird. So then the next month we started the young people's meeting in AA. Never been one here in Manhattan. First three meetings were my loft down on Sixth Avenue. Then we got a, uh, we got the Quaker meeting because I was a member of the Quaker meetings. We met at the Quaker meeting, a French Seminary on 16th Street for many years. Big group, where do you have young people meet on a, on a Friday night, of course, right? When everybody's juices are going and hot to trot, and, hey, what's happening? Blah blah blah. So, so we had a young people's meeting in AA, and you know, I I was always on call to intergroup, national council on alcoholism, general services offices, because they would be requesting speakers to come talk to nursing students, you know, doctors, high school students, etc. So, and I was very very grateful and happy to do that, to be able to go out and talk to young people. But after five years, you know, (laughs) I wasn't interested in being a a new Bill Wilson, thank you. I just uh, didn't really get off on it. So I I put AA over here. AA was my number one uh, resource because without sobriety, I have nothing, nothing, zero. So first and foremost, I have to not drink, and I've chosen not to drink, and all the rest follows. So in first position is AA Quakers, and then my friend Waldo Waldo uh, Emerson. Here's number five. What's my legacy? My legacy is parenthood. Two words: parenthood. Think Robin Hood, okay? except I'm parenthood. So you can be a birth parent, you can be a step-parent, you can be an adoptive parent, you can be a surrogate parent, and you can be a foster parent. I've been four out of those five. One, two, three, four, four. So. And that was starting when I was in the fourth grade over in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, when I was 11 years old and I would come home in fourth grade. My father would show me what he had prepared for dinner, show me the bottle that my sister was supposed to get, the formula bottle, I had a brother a year younger. My sister was one year old. My mother was in uh, deep depression. She'd lost her eyesight and she was never going to see again so she was 32 years old and blind, right? So I came home, I served. My father went off at four o'clock. He was a printer at the New York Times. So he worked nights. So he left four o'clock, got home at 12, one o'clock. So I served dinner, changed diapers, gave my sister the bottle, and took care of her as best I could for years. and. That was fourth grade. I went to graduate school until I was 29. And we moved back from San Francisco when our youngest son was born in August of 1980. And we moved back to New York and I was 37. My then wife wanted to go back into uh, publishing ASAP. She, you know, she didn't like living in Marin County and Sausalito and Mill Valley with all those, you know trust fund babies doing coke and getting all fucked up. So we moved back to Manhattan. She wanted to go to publishing. And I said, I would take care of the children. So go get a job and we'll see how that works out. The children were three months old. In 1980, 37 years old, I became Mr. Mom, Monsieur Mama, full time, family of five. Cooking, eating, shopping, laundry, you know, the whole schmear. So usual meals that go to the office and have just such great difficulty. Where are we going to have lunch today? Or could somebody turn the air conditioning down, please? Right. I'm home, wondering what the hell these kids are gonna do, you know, their homework, their children's stuff, what have you. So going off to the office. You know, it's one type of work. Dealing with a family of five is, is real work. And I loved it. I was good at it. I was very good. I had three sons. I still have three sons. I have a daughter who lives in, in London, and in, uh, Lyon, France. So I was a super mom, a super mom. Up here on the Upper East Side, there are no house husbands. Mothers and fathers both are working. <laughs> the tuition over here at a private kindergarten right a couple blocks from here tuition sixty five thousand dollars after taxes right for seven months taking care of these little no neck monsters you know overindulged and what have you but so i took care of my kids i took care of everybody's kids i was the class mother in eighth grade, they never had a father who was a class mother. Isn't this all boys' school? So year after year, I would show kids all over. I was the head of Cub Scouts for three years, the Cub Master, can you believe it or not? And of course, the mother's a gaga, that there's a father, my God, and he's the leader? Gee, wow, whoop-de-doo. So in that sense, I've led as a power of example to other kids and what have you. So here's what I, Emerson, make your own path. My son, Adam, my oldest son, Adam, just turned 50 two months ago. My oldest son. He's 50 years old. And for 25 of those 50 years, he has a, been a public defender in San Francisco. Okay. Read College, Hastings Law, 25 years as a public defender. Loves his work, devoted to it. And so that's, you know, who our family is. So I told you, I'll leave you with this on that segment. So I was always told to go out to high schools. And when I was sober one year, I went out to Far Rockaway High School. Now going from Upper Manhattan to Far Rockaway is like hours, <laughs> it's just, you can't believe how, how long it is. It's just forever. You know, you're wondering, where's Shannon? So I did that in December of 65. I was just over one year. And they liked what, they, what I did for their classes and they invited me back to come back in the spring semester for all their health classes. They invited me every year to come spring and fall to talk to their classes. So here's, here's a letter I'm going to read you from May 69 from the principal's office at the Far Rockaway High School, May 6, 1969. This is what I want read at my at my memorial service. Our staff marveled at your physical and mental endurance when you willingly lectured for six continuous hours. As you know, the students returned two or three times to hear your lectures and the question period that followed. I hope that we did not burden you when we canceled the physical activities classes in order that you could reach 200 additional boys and girls. I estimate that you spoke to 2,000 340 students in the course of the day. So I spoke to 2,340 high school juniors and seniors in May of 1969. I was carrying the message. I've always carried the message. But my life speaks for me. I don't speak for me. You know, I really really don't get off on doing this. (laughs) And I, and I told Clifford that, that I was okay with everything except recording. But then I looked at the podcast, I listened to the first first and the second podcast, and I realized that uh, maybe this was an opportunity to do three things. One, uh, share my experience over the 57 years that I've been around. Number two, give you some oral history about AA and what it was like back in the old days, you know, 1960s and 70s, and to um, have a sort of a uh, fireside chat with someone who's listening to the podcast. And, and, and I think that's what uh, convinced me to do this because this isn't me, you know, I don't, I don't really get off on this shit, I really don't. So trust me, I don't, it's not my, it's not, my, it's not like how I s- spent my days. But anyway, uh, here we are, here I am, and uh, I'm doing my best. So, number six, let's talk about death and dying. (laughs) Why not, right? Okay, so in August of 1991, I visited San Diego to be with my brother on his 46th birthday. August 7th, I was there with my 11-year-old son. We spent the whole day together and then I drove up to LA to see some friends. That was the last time I was gonna see my brother. A month later, he jumped off the Coronado Dell Bridge from La Jolla to the Coronado Island. Drove out to the middle of the bridge, got out of his car and jumped at 46 years old. Left one note, quote, I can't take the pain any more. End quote. So that was the greatest loss in my life. It was like taking the 24 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica, taking the first 12 volumes out to the backyard and throwing them in the well, gone, you know gone all those memories and what have you. So he was manic depressive. He struggled, you know, since he'd been in the Marines. And if you read a poem by C.K. Williams, Charlie Williams, Suicide, and A-N-N-E. And he wrote that for the poet, Anne Sexton. It helped me to uh, appreciate what my brother probably did. And that is, We all have control of our lives and he chose to complete his, to draw to an end as everybody does. And he made that choice and um, that was his choice. So So, a month later, I went back out to Phoenix for the ninth time in two years. My very elderly and very sick grandparents 87 and 89 years old had asked me the previous time i had been out there to help them commit suicide. So assisted suicide. Here's the book I bought, Final Exit. There it is. Final Exit. The Practicalities of Self-Deliverance and Assisted Suicide for the Dying by Derek Humphrey. Got the receipt right here, October 31st, 1991. So I went out there and uh, it didn't go well the first time. My grandmother didn't want a plastic bag tied over her head because it's not easy to kill somebody. You have to asphyxiate them. They're not going to die from the Valium in their yogurt, you know, or whatever. So she didn't want a plastic bag. And I said, hey, that's, I'm cool with that. So at six o'clock in the morning, I'm in their bedroom and they're both still alive. So I had to call 911. I can't just lie them, let them lie there all day. And I called 911. And they came, took my grandmother to one hospital. They took my grandfather to another hospital. I went to see my grandmother. And as I'm by her bed, I'm standing by her bed, I'm looking at uh, Magic Johnson, announced that he was HIV positive. And with that, my grandmother's line went flat, dead. But then she came back and was alive. Her heart restarted, they didn't do anything. So then I drove over to the other hospital. My grandfather was in the emergency room in a place in there. And I walked in, he was breathing, comatose. Nurse in there said, well, what happened? I said, I, I think they tried to commit suicide. So she looks at me, there's only two of us in the room. And she said, Well, why did you call 911? <laughs> I said, Well, what was I going to do? Just leave them lie there all day? She said, Well, you should have thought about that before you called 911. This is a nurse in Phoenix, <laughs> up close and personal, giving me uh, aid of sorts. So. so they both came home and it didn't work. A week later, my grandfather got out of the hospital, and we, the day before, I closed the door and said to the male head nurse in this hospital, my grandfather doesn't want to live. How do we take care of that? And he told us just exactly what to do. Make sure the food is off the tray, have him reading the newspaper, get him up and walking around, and then we'll discharge him. So they were gonna discharge him the next day. So I, I got a wheelchair, I brought it up, put him in the wheelchair and my grandfather's sitting there waiting for the final orders. My grandfather says, close the door. So, and he looked at me and for the first time in 63 years, he told me about what happened when he killed his brother Carl at 10 years old and what he remembered from the funeral where his grandmother, who was a convert from Protestant to Catholic, you know, Gestapo, Nazi Catholic, kept on saying over and over, we've lost our best, we've lost our best. And my grandfather told me what happened, unburdened himself, shared with me that, after 63 years. So I wheeled them home. We had friends of theirs over for the last dinner, the last supper. They don't know it's the last supper. And my grandparents said goodbye to them. And and then we carried on, you know. And this time my grandmother said she was okay. She was gone in like two minutes. My grandfather, strong German Parkinson's disease, hated having Parkinson's because he could see every single minute the diminution of his whole body. Couldn't wipe his ass, couldn't eat, couldn't do, you know, and he's, he's present during this whole destruction of his life. So came time to put the bag over his head And he said to me words that I'd never heard him speak to anyone. I love you, I love you, I love you. And he was dead. And I called 911. Detectives came, put tape around the whole house and the whole property, car in his office, detectives, local police, local uh, newspaper people, my Todd, a double suicide. And I had to sit across the street, away from the crime scene. And for a couple of hours, the detective came over. He handed me his card and he said, I'm very sorry for your loss. Please call me if I can be of any help. So, so that was the toughest thing I have had to do. And the month before was the biggest loss in my life. So I love my grandparents, they were my parents, they really were, and I never thought about it. In Maricopa County where Phoenix is, assisting suicide is felony murder, felony murder. So what, for whatever reason, I believe it's because they tried the week before and it didn't work. So they would have a tough crime convincing a jury or grand jury that, you know, they didn't want to die. So whatever. So that was uh, death and dying up close, but it got even closer. It was on July 10th, 2005, following a game of racquetball, which I played for 35 years. Every morning I was in New York. I leave my apartment right where I'm sitting now. I walk a block to the 92nd Street Y. The YMHA, the Young Men's Hebrew Association, Shabbat Shalom. It's a nice candle lighting in New York. is 7.03 p.m. for those of you who are wanting to light the Shabbat candles. So following a game of racquetball, I'm sitting there with three or four of my friends. I've been playing racquetball for 25, 30 years with the same group of 10, 12, 15 guys. And in mid-sentence, I keel over. And what I have is called sudden death. And that's exactly what it is. The heart stops. It's an electrical problem, lights out, fuse, not a heart attack, your heart stops, period. So, CO, uh, what is it called, CPR? It comes in like 45 seconds, a minute, because two surgeons on an adjacent racquetball court are there to do CPR. The only thing that's going to start my heart is a defibrillator, that's on the ele- on the third floor, I'm on the 11th floor, so it's got to come up by elevator. Paramedics are dispersed on anything, not just EMT, paramedics, because they can intubate and do drugs. My heart starts on the third and last shock, intubated, and as I'm rolled through the Lobby of the 92nd Street Y, the paramedic said to the waiting police who are charged with notifying the dead, my next of kin, that I've been dead. So they say DOA, and I'm off to Lenox Hill Hospital, 15 blocks from here. I find out years later that my heart start, stopped again in the ambulance. I get to Lenox Hill Hospital, I'm put on a ventilator. I don't know what a ventilator looks like. I think it's like an iron lung for polio. Now we all know what ventilators look like. (laughs) So I was in a coma. I come out of the coma. I have three procedures at Lenox Hill. I'm taken by ambulance up to Columbia Presbyterian. I have another procedure. I'm out of intensive care for the first time in 12 days. I walk downstairs and I take the subway to 96th Street and the bus home. I just think it's, you know, total shock, maybe that I just don't even know what the, you know, dead. Okay. So, but I'm not dead now. When I went to see the cardiologist to get uh, clearance to fly to London in two weeks, um, I said to him as I was leaving, I said, you Have you ever had a, another patient with sudden death? And he said, um, yeah, and, and it was um, brain dead. He was brain dead. So I'm obviously not brain dead. I had to come back. Mayor Mayor Bloomberg invited me to the Second Chance Brunch to honor city employees who saved lives. It was the 12th brunch. I was the first one who would ever been there with, second, with uh, sudden death. I went back a couple of years later, I'm still the only one sudden death. So, so I survived death, pretty good. So that's, I'm I'm, I'm just about had it. (laughs) So let's go to this day we have. So I'm in the sweet spot of my life. I'm comfortable, contented, I float. I think of inner tube. I've never really had a plan. You know, in graduate school until I was 21, 29, and then I became a house husband, and I've been a house husband for 42 years. So, but that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I'm just going to end with this because I've, I've reached the end of my story. So this is what I wrote a year after I was dead, and it's called "Quote My Eight Months of." Magical thinking, unquote, a play on Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking, which I read every single day. And I wrote to her and she wrote back. And, you know, it's just an extraordinary story, hers and mine. And they were like this. So there are atheists and foxholes, despite the false testimony of others. I knew it was all out of my hands, never felt sorry for myself, never lost any hope. Play the hand I was dealt. If this was it, act three, curtains, then so be it. Three cheers and a hearty well done. Given the cards I was dealt, I'd have to say I've led a rather remarkable, unconventional, successful, interesting and full life. No complaints, none. I wish my next death is as easy as the last piece of cake. I know many of you will appreciate that I write this to both inform and enlighten and share my journey with you. Remember when your chips are down and things are looking pretty grim, make your choice. Do what is in your own best interests. Go out a winner, not a whiner, with class if at all possible. No one gets out alive. No luggage racks on hearses. Here today, gone tomorrow. Amen. Thank you, that's all.